0: There, you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Good evening, and welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. For those that are here for the first time, welcome to you also. Please join me in welcoming back Father Paul Scalia.
2: There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, Who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Almighty God and Father, we ask you to send your Holy Spirit to drive from us all distractions, those of our own making, and those of the evil one. Set all our hearts and focus our minds. Enlighten us with your truth that we may understand more profoundly you as Creator and Lord, who live and reign with the Son and Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Who brought a catechism? Nice, nice. (laughs) Who brought a Bible? Okay. <laughs> Not as nice, but getting there. Okay. Tonight, we turn to the next part of the Creed. Last week, we talked about God, the Father Almighty. This week, creator of heaven and earth, or maker of heaven and earth in the Nicene Creed, of all things visible and invisible. Okay? Okay. Not seen and unseen. Get rid of that. What's the difference? Seen. Unseen. Okay, uh, but you wouldn't call it invisible. Okay, it's just unseen. So uh, we'll get to that. There are some things that by their very nature are invisible. It's not just that they're unseen, like you've got an obstructed seating. It's that they're invisible. In the Catechism, this begins paragraph 279. I began with a prologue to John's Gospel. I think that's a very important place to begin. You may have thought that I would begin with Genesis 1. That would have been a good place, too. But that passage brings out not just God as creator, but also the union of the Father and the Son, and therefore also, of course, the Holy Spirit in the act of creation. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I'll come back to that as we go through this section this evening. I touched on this last week, how the triune God is involved, all three persons in the act of creation. The Son and the Spirit are not just sitting idly by as the Father creates. Like, you know, Dad doing the chores and, you know, the kids just sitting there. No, all three persons are involved in creation. Uh, I mentioned how the Catechism is very Trinitarian. A lot of the sections are structured in this way to bring out how the Trinity is throughout our faith and not just, you know, one Sunday a year. That will be seen as we go through this section. Let me just begin with, uh, and for those of you who didn't bring your catechism, I'm giving you a cheat sheet, okay? Um, actually, I'm just emailing it to Sabatino. He's giving it to you. Um, so I, I've begun with a quote from De Filius which is a document from Vatican I. How many of you knew that there was a Vatican I? Must have been, because there's a Vatican II, right? <laughs> but you don't hear much about Vatican I. The Church states this one true God of his own goodness and almighty power not for increasing his own beatitude nor for attaining his perfection but in order to manifest this perfection through the benefits which he bestows on creatures with absolute freedom of counsel and from the beginning of time made out of nothing both orders of creatures the spiritual and the corporeal that is packed That statement is so tightly phrased, it's just packed with doctrine. The Catechism speaks first about the importance of a catechesis on creation. Why is it so important? Well, simply because it concerns the very foundations, the very beginning of everything. If we get the beginnings wrong, well, you know, we're, we're gonna be really wrong down the road. And so we want to make sure that we have a proper understanding of the very beginning. And contained in the beginning is also the goal or the purpose, I mean, who begins anything without having first a purpose in mind? Well, a lot of people, but they shouldn't, okay? okay. We, we should always act with purpose, okay? When we begin something, We always want to begin with the end in mind. That way we can accomplish the task better. And so it is with creation that we find not just the origin of everything, but also the purpose. What is the end? And so paragraph 282 talks about this how the issue of creation brings up questions that are very deep in the human heart. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin? What is our end? Where does everything that exists come from and where is it going? These are things that man has sought to answer by philosophy, by myths, by many different ways. And now scientists will claim that they can answer all of this for us. But This is very deep in the human heart to want answers to this. A catechesis on creation helps us to get to the answers here. And it also has to be distinguished from science. Science is a very good thing. But what we're seeing now increasingly is what some call scientism. Meaning, it is science that has sort of gone beyond its appointed boundaries. And now it's assumed to make declarations of things that science really cannot answer. It's like (laughs) the purpose of life and Moral judgments and things like that. No science can tell us about matter and About how the physical world Behaves and so on but it can't tell us the purpose of our lives and ultimately it can't tell us why we exist and things like that So paragraph 284 touches on this the great interest accorded to these studies is strongly stimulated by a question of another order which goes beyond the proper domain of the natural sciences. Physics, chemistry, biology, they cannot answer this. Namely, it is not only a question of knowing when and how the universe arose physically, or when man appeared, but rather of discovering the meaning of such an origin. That's really what we're interested in. That is really what what burdens our heart. What is our origin? What is our purpose? Our mind, our intellect might think it's it would be nice also to know exactly how physically we came into being, but that, even if we know it through and through, it still doesn't answer the question, why? The wisdom of God gives the answer to that question. And so we should not denigrate science in its proper place, but neither should we be misled and think that The natural sciences can answer questions that ultimately are of a spiritual and metaphysical nature. And paragraph 285, I want to single that out for emphasis because it names a bunch of different theories, philosophies, or even theologies about creation. Since the beginning, the Christian faith has been challenged by responses to the question of origins that differ from its own. And it lists pantheism, dualism, Manichaeism, Gnosticism, Deism, Materialism. Okay, it's a lot of isms. What are all of these? Well, each one really is answered by Catholic doctrine. And I think as we go along, we'll, we'll see the answer to that. Pantheism, of course, is the thought that the world and God are not distinct. They really are one thing. Concern for the environment is a reasonable thing. Worshipping the environment is not. Okay, And that's sort of a modern form of pantheism that we can see in some radical groups. Catholic doctrine says, of course, that God is distinct from his creation. He is distinct from his creation. He is not part of it. Another error is dualism or Manichaeism the Albigensians, Albigensianism, right? That'll make it more clear, right? Okay. Um, Oh, why did you say them first place? Okay. That is the belief that there are really sort of two forces or two deities that create. Uh, So you have the one responsible for the spiritual order, the spiritual realm, and then you have another responsible for the physical Now, who's good and who's bad in this lineup here? Well, spiritual is good, physical is bad. That is sort of the logical conclusion, and that's why Manichaeism and Albigensianism were such threats to the world, is because they had this radically pessimistic view of the human body. Well, Catholic doctrine is clear. There's one creator, and he creates both, as this definition has it, the spiritual and the corporeal. Both are good. And so you cannot denigrate either the spiritual or the physical. We're seeing this error again in our own culture. What does it mean, for example, to be male or female? Is there goodness that is written into this itself that we have to observe? Well, increasingly, uh, we are saying no. It means nothing. We can do with it as we will. There's this sort of hatred or discomfort with the human body. Nothing new under the sun. Gnosticism also fell into the same trap of viewing the human body as bad. You might remember Gnosticism from having read The Da Vinci Code. Okay, don't admit to it. Don't, don't, okay. Um, But uh, The Da Vinci Code, of course, the plot was this enlightened Gnostic sect that preserved the truth about the beauty of the human body. Well, just the opposite was the case. The Gnostics really had a deep hatred for the human body. They considered only the spiritual to be good. That's why the church reacted so strongly against them. Deism. What is deism? I think, you know, we've all heard this. It's the famous, you know, the watchmaker, you know, God as creator. He designs his machine, he sets it into motion, and then he goes to dinner, you know, and he just lets it go, but he's not involved at all in the proceeding of his creation. He's not present to it. He's not running it. It runs itself once he gets it going. And finally, materialism. Viewing all of creation just as matter. That there's no spiritual principle. And so, you know, one of the last words there in that definition, just drop that. That there is no order. There's no spiritual order. And it's just the corporeal. And everything can be reduced to matter. And so the human soul is just a more highly evolved product of matter. And of course, this is something that in our view of creation we reject as well. And I'll get to that also. Those are some of the errors that we've faced. And in facing them, it helps to understand precisely what it is that we believe. Now, let's go back to that definition. This one true God of his own goodness and almighty power. So God is completely free in creating. And he is completely good. So it is both his free action and entirely good. Nothing created is bad. Everything that is, is good. The devil, insofar as he exists is good. Now, the way he behaves isn't really that good, okay? But the fact that he exists. So, why did God create? This definition brings it along. Not for increasing his own beatitude. That would be impossible. If God can grow and become better, ugh then he's not perfect, (laughs) okay? He can't be God, okay? Part of your job description, if you're God, is that you can't get any better. You're already, you know, the greatest. So, not for increasing his own beatitude, nor for attaining his perfection, because, of course, he's already perfect. Why would they include that? Precisely because some pantheists would say, well, actually, God is always in the process of becoming, and that's why he has created things, and he's sort of involved in this journey of creation somehow. But in order to manifest this perfection through the benefits which he bestows on creatures, in order to manifest his goodness and to share it, to manifest his glory in the created world, and, as we'll see a little later, in us especially. In us especially, because we are the pinnacle of creation. He wants to share and to manifest his glory, and that is the purpose of creation. With absolute freedom of counsel, absolute freedom, nobody's advising him, okay? Uh, God's rebuke to Job is wonderful. You know, were you there when I created the world? Absolute freedom of counsel. Let me just sort of parenthetical statement here, which is a fancy way of saying a digression, okay? This helps us to understand freedom. I point this out because it helps us to see how everything in the catechism and in our faith is interconnected. What does it mean to be free? To be free does not mean to be able to choose good or evil, because God is absolutely free and it's impossible for him to choose evil. No one is more free than God. And so our freedom, by analogy, cannot possibly include the ability to do evil. True freedom is when we are completely capable of doing the good, doing what we're created to do. More on that in a little bit. Uh, With absolute freedom of counsel and from the beginning of time. I mentioned last week that the pagan uh, philosophers, for example, Aristotle, did not believe that the world had a beginning or would have an end, and he thought it was eternal. Actually, it is the Christian insight that has enabled philosophy to see that there is a beginning to the world, well before the natural sciences posited it. From the beginning of time, made out of nothing, out of nothing, God creates ex nihilo, as we say, out of nothing. Why is this important? It might seem like a no-brainer to us. Well, of course he creates it, you know, but... For the vast majority of history and perhaps even today throughout the world, this was not what was believed. Many ancient myths trying to explain creation, where we come from, would depict a creation coming from some, there was some matter there, some who knows what sitting around, and the gods or the god form the world out of it. In one of his books, Cardinal Ratzinger makes mention of an ancient myth that has creation coming from a battle between a deity and a dragon. And the deity slays the dragon, and the dragon's body becomes the earth, and his blood becomes us. Now, will that give you an optimistic, rosy view of, of the created world and human relations? You know, probably not, okay? That God creates out of nothing, highlights his absolute freedom, his absolute power, And it highlights that everything that exists is good, because there is nothing that exists that does not come from God. Both orders of creatures, the spiritual and the corporeal, well, in this order, it would be the invisible and the visible. Now, it is a work of the Trinity. A work of the Trinity. In the beginning was the word. The Greek there is logos, meaning word as in reason, a reasonable principle. In the beginning was a logical principle. The Word is the Father's knowledge of Himself. It is something having to do with the intellect and with reason. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Which means the world is intelligible. It can be understood because the Father created the world through the Word, through His Son, through this principle of reason and intelligibility. So we believe that when we look at the created world, we can apply our minds to it and understand it. The Muslim world experienced some centuries ago A complete halt really to any scientific investigation. Most patents in the world come from outside the Muslim world. The Christian view of the world says that this can be understood because it's created through the Word, because God is reasonable. Allah, who is, as I mentioned last week, not constrained by reason, If that's your understanding of the creator, what will your understanding of creation be? If the creator does not have to be confined by reason, will his creation be reasonable? Will it be intelligible? Is there any point to investigation? And so that is why, as many theologians and scientists point out, uh, the Christian world just, at one point, just outpaced the Muslim world in science. Not just by a little bit, but, but in an extraordinary way. I mentioned, okay, God creates out of nothing. I mentioned pantheism. Paragraph 300, I didn't include it on your sheet, but worth jotting down there. Or looking up if you have it. God transcends his creation and is present to it. With every heresy, there's a truth. Whenever people make a mistake, they're they're trying they're trying to find something true. So pantheism does touch on a truth. The truth is this, that God is present to his creation. Now, the mistake that pantheism makes is to think that God is part of his creation, that creation is somehow synonymous with God. God is distinct from his creation. He transcends it. He is completely other. That is what we mean when we say holy, 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 holy. Uh, There's a homilist at St. John's a couple years ago, He kind of joked about the mistaken understanding that we have of that word. Holy does not mean, it doesn't mean morally good. It means completely other. When we say holy, 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 we're not saying, you know, nice guy, nice guy, nice guy. You know, fair, fair, fair. Um, No, holy, holy, holy means he is completely other, he's completely transcendent. I cannot comprehend him. I can't confine him to my tiny little thoughts. I have to be in awe of him. So he transcends his creation. At the same time, however, and this is what the deists do not understand, he is entirely present to his creation because he sustains it in being at every moment. Who is keeping you in being right now? It is God, present to you. Just naturally speaking, hopefully he's present to you in the order of grace as well. But in the order of nature, he sustains us in being and everything that is. And that is why we can look at creation and the beauty of nature and give thanks to God, not that he did this, you know, thousands of years ago, but because he continues to sustain it in being. The pantheists get that part right, that God is very present to his creation. He is closer to us than we are to ourselves. What they get wrong is he also transcends his creation. The deists get it right that God transcends creation. What they get wrong is that he's also very present. Now, some words about divine providence. Divine providence consists of the dispositions by which God guides all his creatures with wisdom and love to their ultimate end. And again, divine providence works also through the actions of creatures. To human beings, God grants the ability to cooperate freely with his plans. What is this all about? Paragraph 302 says, The universe was created in a state of journeying toward an ultimate perfection yet to be attained to which God has destined it. We call divine providence the dispositions by which God guides his creation toward this perfection. Now that's a very interesting thing, and I think that would surprise most of us. That when God created all things, in a sense it wasn't finished. He had begun his creation, he had created everything, but he also intended to guide it to an ultimate perfection, to be involved in this journeying of all of creation. We usually think he created everything, stepped out of the room, Adam and Eve got in trouble, he came back in and said, what have you done? Now I have to fix it. Okay. No, But all of creation is, as the Catechism says, in a state of journeying. That's very interesting. It shows how intimately involved he is in his creation from the start. From the start. Divine providence is the dispositions by which God guides his creation toward this perfection. A great fictional telling of this is Lord of the Rings. Throughout those books, for those of you who've read them or are going to, hopefully that's everybody, um, there is this, this hidden guiding of events. And there are various times in which that's alluded to. And so it is with us that we are not doing everything. And I dare say that each of us can point to some event in our lives and say, you know what, I had made some plans. They fell through, but then somehow everything came together. And it wasn't my doing And it seems like somebody else had other plans in mind that were better than mine. Now, paragraph 306 talks about secondary causes. I want to just linger on this a little bit. Secondary causes. The predominant Muslim understanding of how Allah works is that he causes everything. So that pen that you just put down there, he caused that the water that spilled over there before the talk, he caused that. At every moment, he's causing everything. Catholic theology is drastically different. Let me quote from Abbot Vognier, who is a great theologian, writing the turn of the last century. He says, We can never give too great prominence to the scholastic principle that God himself never does directly what may be achieved through created causality. God prefers to work through secondary causes. For example, the planets, you know, the moon causing the tides to change, the sun causing crops to grow, and then most of all, us. All of these secondary causes, we get to participate in God's bringing all of creation to its ultimate perfection. But the sun and the moon do not think or will. We do. So we are a secondary cause of what God desires to have come about. He's not accomplishing everything on his own. Now, Islam would view this as a weakness, that Allah is not doing everything. We see this as a strength, that God in his glory has shared his guiding of all creation with us and with others in creation. So there are all these secondary causes in creation that are bringing it to its ultimate perfection. This does not diminish God's glory. It enhances it. To give a real world analogy that I think everybody can understand, which boss do you like more? The micromanager Or the one who wants, you know, all of his employees to take initiative and to all, you know, pitch in and and have their own role and their own say in bringing the, the company or whatever to its ultimate perfection. Nobody likes a micromanager. Allah is a micromanager. He's right there causing absolutely everything. The triune God desires his creation to participate in what he has begun. And by the way, St. Augustine makes, point of, uh, makes note of this, that in the book of Genesis, on the seventh day, we read Genesis 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. Really, it should be, it's the imperfect. He had been doing. He had been doing. In other words, he's still doing it. He's still present, and he's still working in the world to bring it to its ultimate perfection. This is important to keep in mind because then it gets to the question of evil. Because God's providence is able to guide all things. Nothing falls beyond the scope of God's providence. He's able to guide all things mysteriously towards the ultimate perfection of the world and, please God, our salvation. How does evil fit into this? Something to never say to people at a funeral, especially a very difficult one of somebody who's died young. Never say to people, this is all part of God's plan. Yikes, that's awful, you know? <laughs> I just lost my husband. <laughs> and you're telling me this is all part of his plan? Now I, you know, I have to raise children without my husband. That's part of God's plan? Okay, no, God, that's not necessary for his plan, but in God's providence, he can bring good out of it. And I think that's what people are trying to say. But we have to be careful the way we say it. The great quip that summarizes providence is God writes straight with crooked lines. Joseph, when he finds his brothers in Egypt, and his brothers are more than a little nervous because remember the last time they saw him? They were selling him to slavery. And he says, what you willed for evil, God worked for good. Talk about secondary causes. Think about our Lord's trial, his crucifixion. What did they intend by it? Evil. What did God bring from it? Good. That is how God's providence brings things about to accomplish God's ends without violating human freedom. Now that is a great mystery. We know all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Memorize that one. Okay, Romans 8.28. Now then. Heaven and earth. Let's talk about the angels. The existence of the spiritual, non corporeal beings that sacred scripture usually calls angels is a truth of faith. No denying it, okay? This is not just some childhood myth. As purely spiritual creatures, angels have intelligence and will, they are personal and immortal creatures, surpassing in perfection all visible creatures as the splendor of their glory bears witness. Surpassing in perfection all visible creatures. So those images of angels, you know, the precious moment angels, okay, with the the little cute little baby angels with the cute little wings, get rid of that, okay? There's a reason whenever an angel appears in scripture, the first words are, do not be afraid. Because angels surpass in perfection all created creatures, all physical creatures are visible. We see them, we are overawed by them, except Mary, the queen of angels, to whom the archangel said, hail. Let me just touch on a couple of aspects here of angels. God creates all of the angels at once. It is reasonable to believe in angels. Many philosophers throughout history have believed in even the modern philosophers. It's reasonable to believe that just as there are aspects of creation that are purely physical and have no spiritual principle, and then there are some creatures like us who have both a physical and a spiritual aspect, so also it's reasonable to presume or to conclude that there are creatures that have nothing physical and are entirely spiritual. They are personal. This is just for your devotional life here. They are personal. Your guardian angel actually wants to... Like hear from you. They are personal, meaning they're capable of relationship. That's good news as regards all of the angels that are on our side. Bad news regarding the angels who are against us, because they're personal and they'd like to have a relationship too, just not a very good one, okay? What is the role of the angels? In the Catechism, in uh, paragraph 332, just gives sort of a very brief history of the angels in the Old and the next paragraph and then in the New Testament. And actually this section, when it does, I love the way it begins. Christ is the center of the angelic world. The angels worship Jesus Christ. They serve him. It's not like, you know, the angels are there and Jesus is there and, you know, somehow we're not really sure how they're connected. No, they serve him. And their entire purpose is to make him known and loved. That's their purpose. Except the bad guys. They chose against that. That's how they became the bad guys. They are present in everything leading up to Christ coming into the world, all through the Old Testament, at the very beginning, right? Escorting Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And then, of course, at the Annunciation. So you go to the National Gallery, there are several wonderful pieces there from Italian painters. Um, (laughs) That show the Annunciation, show Archangel Gabriel coming to Mary, but then sort of on the side and in the background you see Adam and Eve being kicked out of Eden by an angel, and it's a wonderful way of understanding the unity of all things, that the angels were present when we lost everything, and then an angel was sent to give us the news of its restoration. The angels are present throughout the life of Christ. Did Christ have a guardian angel? Yes, because he had a human nature. More on that next time. Um, So they are present to him, present at his birth, present in the Garden of Gethsemane, present at his resurrection, present in leading him into heaven. The angels continue in the church. And the angels, as the catechism points out, continue with each of us personally. From its beginning until death, human life is surrounded by their watchful care and intercession. This is not something we should set aside when we grow up. That simple faith we had as children, the angel of God, my guardian, dear prayer, these are not things we should set aside. These are realities that deliver us from great evil and bring us to virtue. And then... Beside each believer stands an angel as protector and shepherd leading him to life. Each of you has one of these powerful spiritual creatures at your side who wants to hear from you so he can help you out a little better. So the invisible and now to the visible. Now we turn to the visible world and the creation of this world in particular. I want to point out the Catechism, paragraph 342, talks about the hierarchy of creatures. The hierarchy of creatures. Hierarchy is a really bad word in our culture. It's not four letters, but it might as well be. (laughs) Because whenever people think hierarchy, they think totalitarianism, submission, degradation, whatever else. Let me just point out that each of you is a hierarchy because not every member of your body has the same role. They're all necessary for the body to be whole and entire, but I could cut off your arm, you'd still live, if treated properly. (laughs) Cut off your head, just not going to, okay? So there's a hierarchy just in the human body, right? Hierarchy means a proper ordering of things. A proper ordering of things. This is from Joseph Pieper and Heinz Raskop, It's amazing what books you find when you're moving, right? As I just did, this is great. (laughs) Creation is not a haphazard jumble of things and beings, but an organized structure ranging all the way from inorganic matter, the stones and rocks of this earth, to the angels before the face of God. And so in the physical world, we encounter this hierarchy of creatures, We do not all have an equal role. And man is the summit of creation in this world. We sum up in ourselves every other order of creatures in this world. The mineral, the vegetable, the animal. And then we are the weirdest of God's creatures because we combine all of that with the rational soul as well. And so we summarize everything in this world, in our very being, but we also have something in common with the angels. So we're sort of the bridge between the visible and the invisible. Another great thing uh, Catechism points out, paragraph 347, "...creation was fashioned with a view to the Sabbath, and therefore for the worship and adoration of God. Worship is inscribed in the order of creation." As the rule of St. Benedict says, nothing should take precedence over the work of God, that is, solemn worship. This indicates the right order of human concerns. Just by the way, I was dipping into a book by Cardinal Ratzinger on creation, and I ran across basically this same paragraph. (laughs) And I went, wait a minute, I've seen that before. And so... (laughs) It must have been pretty easy for him to help out with this. He goes, oh, you know, I already wrote about that. Let me just email it to you. Um, What does this mean? At the beginning, I said, if we understand our origins, we understand our purpose. At our very beginning, our purpose is made clear that it's the worship of God. That's the meaning of God resting on the seventh day, the Sabbath. He's inviting us into that rest. He's inviting us into that communion, into that worship of him. Creation was fashioned with a view to the Sabbath, and therefore for the worship and adoration of God. When we give worship of God, all of creation is summarized in us. Every level of creation, as I said before, mineral, vegetable, animal, spiritual. Everything is summarized in us as we worship God. And so all of creation, in a sense, looks to us to give creation voice before God of his glory and splendor, and give thanksgiving to God for all that is. Now, let's talk about the creation of man. Created in the image of God. Genesis 1.17, if you want to take a look at that. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Paragraph 356. Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. To know and to love... This is what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. We have the capacity to know because we have an intellect. We have the capacity to love because we have free will. We have these things in common with God, sort of, you know, created approximations of God's intellect and will, but we have these. And so to live up to what we are supposed to be, we should seek to know him more and love him more. Let's take this image of the image. Imagine tomorrow morning, as you're getting ready for the day, you look into the mirror and you fully expect to see what? Your image. And yet, as you start brushing your teeth, your image starts combing its hair. (laughs) And then as you start shaving, gentlemen, okay, your image starts putting on earrings. Okay, we expect our images to look like us. God created us to be his image. He expects to look and see an image of himself. Does he? Okay, okay, this is, I'm leading up to the bad news, okay? Okay. (laughs) Body and soul. The human person created in the image of God is a being at once corporeal and spiritual. The biblical account expresses this reality in symbolic language. This is uh, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. What does this mean about who we are? That's what we want to know from Scripture. What does this mean about who we are? It means that we are both physical physical, and spiritual we have the physical in common with the world God forms us from the earth we have the spiritual in common with heaven God breathes life into us the body and the soul are meant for one another the soul is the form of the body bringing life to the human body it is a human body and a human soul one without the other is incomplete which means the saints in heaven, with the exception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, await their bodies. Now, they're pretty happy right now, but with the resurrection of their bodies, that happiness, in fact, increases. And so you see already how this principle of the body-soul unity, which is one of the most important and one of the most forgotten, this principle we'll have to keep in mind when we get to the end of the creed. Look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Why will we be raised body and soul? Because that's, who we, that's what we are. To be raised partly would be incomplete. Male and female he created them. Now many ancient myths tried to explain the differentiation of the sexes. And I think people throughout history have tried to explain it or try to understand it somehow. One of the most common or most famous, I guess, would be that we were originally created asexual. And then as a punishment, we were made male and female. <laughs> and, you know, it's spun into sort of a romantic thing. You, you know, you spend the rest of your life looking for the one who completes you, right? But really, it's ultimately pessimistic. This difference is a punishment. Our culture now is completely rejecting the differentiation of the sexes. One of the most popular things with kids right now is to say that, well, the sex of a person is one thing, the gender is another. So you can be physically male, but your gender could be female or both male and female or male one day, female the other. In other words, and this goes back to that other principle, the body and the soul don't need to go together. Male and female, he created them. This is an original blessing from God. Sometimes hard to understand that way, I know, but an original blessing for complementarity, man and woman have been created that, it, which is to say willed by God, and then again, man and woman were made for each other. One of my favorite episodes in marriage prep was so when I was working with a young couple, and I could tell that when they fought it was just they were sniping at each other, and it was just. It was bad. And so I lectured them for a long time on that they are complementary; They're made for each other. They're not in competition. Man and woman are not meant to be in competition. And that's what I saw in this couple. So I just lectured them. Stop it. You're not in competition. You're complimentary. When you fight, you should be fighting to win a heart, not to win an argument. It doesn't help you to, to win the argument and just anger the other person. What does that do? And went on and on. And at the end of it, The groom turned to his fiancée, nudged her, and said, Told you. (laughs) They they got got another another lecture after that. (laughs) Cannot emphasize enough how important this distinction is and the blessing of it. Man and woman meant to be for each other, complementary, not in competition. To be male is a blessing. To be female is a blessing. It is willed by God. Our culture increasingly has people very much at odds with their sexuality, at odds with their bodies, not thinking that being male or female is a blessing, but feeling it to be a burden. That's what happens when we lose sight of, well, the origins of everything. Original justice. These last two sections here. The inner harmony of the human person, the harmony between man and woman, and finally the harmony between the first couple and all creation comprise the state called original justice. Ah. Think about what God intended to do. In his creation, the inner harmony of the human person, which means that your intellect, your will, your passions, your body and soul all work harmoniously together. The intellect perceives the true, the will grasps it as good, and the passions rejoice in that. The body is perfectly submissive to the soul obeying what the soul perceives and chooses. Man and woman are in perfect harmony with one another. We are in perfect harmony with all of creation. This is original justice. Paragraph 377. The first man was unimpaired and ordered in his whole being because he was free from the triple concupiscence that subjugates him to the pleasures of the senses, covetousness for earthly goods, and self-assertion contrary to the dictates of reason. Imagine that original harmony. What happened? Man rebelled against God, and in rebelling against God, everything rebelled against him. When he threw off that authority, then he surrendered his authority over anything else. The way it is supposed to work is... Our intellect is paramount. We perceive what is true. We know it to be true. And our will obeys the intellect and grasps things as true and chooses things as good. And our passions participate in this, and our body obeys it all. Now, that's not what most of us experience. The body is not obeying the soul. The body is usually commanding the soul. I know it's Sunday, but I, <laughs> I, I want to sleep or I want to shop or I want to do you know, any number of things. And what happens within the soul? Well, it's not the intellect taking the lead. It's the passions. What happens? I see something, my passions tell me, you know, I want this pleasure or I want to indulge my anger or whatever else. And the will... Obeys the passions instead of the intellect. And the intellect gets dragged along just to justify everything. That is the result of original sin. Which brings us to the last section. Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his Creator die in his heart. That is where it began. The mistrust of God. And abusing his freedom, notice that. Abusing his freedom. Not using his freedom abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. To understand freedom, let's say, you know, you have a 16-year-old son, and you give him a car key. Now, for a 16-year-old boy, a car key means what? Freedom. And in giving this to him, you do not say to him, you can drive the car safely or recklessly. That's what freedom's all about. No, you hand over the key, you give him that freedom, so that he can drive the car safely, not any old way he wants, but in the way he is supposed to, the way that will bring him happiness and you, low insurance rates. Okay? <laughs> and so when God gives us freedom, he does not say, now you can use this freedom for good or evil. He gives us the freedom so that we will be the ones choosing him, so that we can use it and choose him with, with our own will. It's an abuse of freedom to rebel against him. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. I'll end with paragraph 400. The harmony in which they had found themselves, thanks to original justice, is now destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. Haven't you always wondered why? (laughs) Why? Uh, Your soul can't seem to control your body. People say knowledge is power. Nonsense. It's it's garbage. It's complete, complete bunk. Because you can know what is right and good and still not do it. (laughs) And you feel not more powerful, but less. And it's because of original sin. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions Their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Visible creation has become alien and hostile to man. Because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage to decay. So, I mean, really, this is the greatest act of anti-environmentalism was original sin, you know, (laughs) because it introduced decay and destruction and disharmony into all of creation. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. This state is transmitted to us throughout the centuries. Adam and Eve stood to receive every grace. They were in a state of grace with God. By their rebellion, they placed themselves in a state of disgrace, and is that state that we have inherited. Original sin is not a sin, strictly speaking, because none of us committed it. It is a state into which we are born. Good thing we're in Advent. We can look forward to the Redeemer who's come to deliver us from this state of sin and of decay. So I will conclude there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father.
1: Thank you very much, Father. You know, one of the reasons why I love to keep inviting Father Scalia back, and I am always so happy when he accepts, is because can it be any clearer? He lays out the church's teaching, not by his own opinion, but by the insights of the saints and of the church. Period. How hard is it? But as I stood in the back, I asked how many churches in the United States, and I'd, I'd venture the world tonight, were doing this in their parish hall. And this is what the Institute of Catholic Culture is all about. I thank you very much for coming tonight. I wish you could taste our wonderful cookies. For all those watching online, the ladies really know how to make some real cookies here. I wanted to thank our volunteers. Okay, question and answer. I just thank God that I am not in Father Scalia's shoes these last couple of weeks. What, I mean, you can get any question about the faith, and he's got to be ready to answer it. If I could go back to the second line in your handout, Nor for attaining his perfection. How did God in the person of Christ grow in wisdom? As the scriptures say, if one of God's perfections is wisdom, and Christ as a person is God's
2: but he has a human nature so according to his human nature could he grow yeah so he, he can grow and progress according to his human nature
1: father we have an email coming from Stafford, Virginia is true Christian freedom something that we could ever hope to experience in human society or is it something that is reserved for heaven
2: It's uh, a great question a great question uh, let's remove the term society from that for a second and just broaden it. Is true human freedom something that we can experience in this world or is it going to be reserved for heaven? Gosh, I think the saints are the freest people in the world and I think they show us that that degree of human freedom is possible. But it's nothing like what our culture thinks it is, right? Our culture thinks true human freedom is when you've got a lot of money and you're going to do with it whatever you want. Well, no, true human freedom is is Maximilian Kolbe in Auschwitz looking at his executioners with love. That's human freedom. In heaven, we're completely free. What this question also touches on is that in heaven, we are completely human. Grace perfects our humanity. And in heaven, the full flowering of grace, our humanity is perfected. There will be a difference between the freedom experienced here and in heaven, but I think it can be said that the saints do show us the full flowering of human freedom as much as it is possible in this world. Now, let's put the word society back into that question. Can society as a whole ever have that? And i say in a fallen world, probably not. Uh, this is something that Catholic social teaching takes very seriously. We live in a fallen world, fallen men and women who are, we're trying to bring together in a just society. The founding fathers of our nation understood that and tried to make provision for it. We can debate whether or not that was Uh, how in keeping that was with Catholic philosophy or theology, but they were trying to make provision for that.
1: Father, does not the presence of grace bear on our ability to make right choices?
2: Yes, thank you for that. What does original sin do? What is the damage that it does? It darkens the intellect. So because of original sin, we do not see things with our mind as clearly as God had intended from the beginning. So we're already at a disadvantage. It weakens the will. The beauty, truth, and goodness that we do see, we have difficulty choosing it because of a weakness of will. This is Romans chapter 7. St. Paul talks, he says, I don't understand myself. The good that I will, I don't do. But the evil that I don't will, I end up doing. It's a wonderful, wonderful confession that everybody can understand. So grace is necessary for what? To enlighten our minds and to strengthen our wills. And that's what we pray for a great deal. The sacrament of baptism uh, is sometimes called the sacrament of enlightenment. Yes, another aspect of grace or effect of it is to strengthen the will to do good, to choose rightly. Without grace, we cannot really do that. And the normative way of grace, of course, is the sacraments and our prayer. God can provide that in exceptional situations, however he wills.
1: Another message coming in online, a question. Some uh, orthodox spiritual writers refer to the soul in general with feminine pronouns. What is the reason for this? I don't understand how there can be a differentiation between the body and soul.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It's mostly grammatical. It's mostly grammatical. The word for soul in Latin is anima. It's a feminine noun. And so when you're going to refer back to it with pronoun, it's going to be she. That's going to explain a lot of it. Animus, which means spirit in Latin, is masculine. Uh, So part of it is, is grammatical or linguistic. But there is also this aspect Chesterton has a great line. He says, men are men, but man is a woman. <laughs> 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 Typical Chesterton. It's at the end of like this some long thing, and he comes up with that quip. What he meant by it, well, it's for another time, but I think it is helpful for us to understand this. When we speak in these terms of masculine and feminine, we are speaking in terms of gender, which for us is understood also by way of the body, no matter what most of the, you know, modern world says now. that masculine is related to male, and feminine is related to female. We are feminine in relation to God. The soul is feminine in relation to God. In this sense, the soul is receptive. And as a woman receives the initiative from a man, so our souls receive God's initiative. Now, everybody's going to... Oh my gosh, this is scandalous. I so hope I'm not scandalizing people. Um, this is not to sexualize everything about our theology, but just to help us understand this relation to God. And the church is discussed as feminine, not only because the word ecclesia is feminine, but also because the church is mother and bride. Bride and then mother. Okay. <laughs> and, and so... So the uh, every soul has this trait of the church. This can be difficult for men to to. Uh, just, wait a minute, I'm I'm feminine in relation to God. Well, okay, we're talking by analogy that the soul is meant to receive. The soul is meant to conceive. Ladies, you're totally at an advantage here. Okay, um, Mary conceived the Word in her heart or in her soul before she conceived Him in her womb. To, A favorite saying of the church fathers. Each of us is to imitate Mary in this regard. We are to conceive Christ spiritually. In other words, he is to come to life within us spiritually. We are to give birth to him in our actions. Saint Bonaventure has a whole series of sermons written this way in this regard. It helps make sense of what our Lord says. Whoever hears the word of God and does it is brother and sister and mother to me. He doesn't say father, does he? So I think that's one of the reasons the soul is often referred to in the feminine.
1: Thank you very much, Father.
2: Thank you.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, Please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.